Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted meets every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. Just a question. When was the last time, can you think of the last time you heard like a full message? Um, ben? <laughs> I couldn't think of it. We were kind of covering that on Wednesday night, but yeah, it's just something we don't really talk about a whole lot. But uh, I hope and I pray that tonight will be profitable for us. I know it will. Uh, it's usually the things that we don't like talking about and don't talk about very often that are the most profitable for us to talk about, um, and I pray that'll be the, the case tonight. Uh, we're going to go ahead and, and do our groups first, so Aaron will have a group, we'll do a group up here, and then uh, and then we'll come back for the message at the end. Uh, let me pray for us, and I'll read the song, and then uh, we can break up. God, I just pray your, your blessings, your hand upon tonight, Lord. I pray that you would uh, just move in a way that encourages us and edifies us and comforts us, and that we just leave here knowing that you are the Lord. We want to leave here being with you, touched by you, and, uh, and just excited about you so we can go out and represent you in this world, Lord. So I pray that, that your word would uh, bring healing. It says that by your stripes we are healed, Lord. And, and I pray for, for whatever type of healing we need tonight that you would minister that to us. You're the great physician. We trust that, that you could heal. And uh, and whatever it is that we're walking in here, each one of us, it's something different. I pray that we would submit that to you. We'd be willing to, to take our, our shoes off and expose our, our hurt, expose our sin, and, and allow you to minister through that, Lord. But we do ask that you would be Lord over this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 51 and it says, Be gracious unto me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. That is the word of the Lord. So, well, um, a couple of things real quick uh, before we get into the study. Uh, in the, a week from Saturday, so July 9th, I, I didn't have room to put it on your outline. It was on last week's, and we'll get some more information for you. We're going to have a, a beach day and a bonfire. I know a bunch of you guys were asking if we could do that. Um, we'll put the address up on or the, the details up on the, the Facebook account. Um, we'll have a map for you guys next week. And, uh, yeah, we'll get you as much information as we can. Um, it'll be at Huntington State Beach. Uh, do you remember the Do you remember the lifeguard station? Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, okay. So yeah, we'll get you guys some some more details about that. We have a couple things this summer that we're trying to put together. Trying to get the, the timing down. Um, I want to have a, a barbecue again. The last couple of years we've had a on a Tuesday night had a met outside and had a barbecue and did some fun stuff. So so we'll be doing that for sure. Um, I want to do a, uh, a breakfast in the cafe again, uh, a few other things. So uh, we'll be having some, some fun stuff coming up. So and some stuff to be excited about. Uh, one other thing I, I wanted to share, um, and, and I think I could share it with you guys because I think most of you guys know the brother. And his wife's been posting this stuff up on social media, so I don't think we're violating anyone's confidence sharing it. But uh, I got a call on, on Saturday um, from, he's been here with us a few times, and uh, I'm not sure if any, all you guys know his situation. He's really sick and kind of getting sicker and, you know, kind of stuck at home, and, and they don't really know what's going on uh, with that or, you know, uh, what God's plan is for him or anything like that. But uh, the reason I bring it up is, is he called me. And it's like, I just, I really want to thank you because years ago you, you shared the doctrines of grace with me and, and taught me some of these things about God's sovereignty. And then I, I also want to thank you because you're doing a series and, and you're putting it online so I could access it. And, and this is exactly what I need to hear. These hearing about providence and God's sovereignty, things like this, this is exactly what I needed to hear right now. And the reason I share that with you is because uh, I know this is a little bit different of a type of study than we're used to. We're not going through a book of the Bible like we typically do at Calvary Chapel and that. But the, the, the reason that we're doing this is this is so important. You see, there's nothing more important, I, I believe, than the way that we think about God. And I think that that's really, you know, really going to become important like when the rubber hits the road and we're thrown into these kind of crisis situations and you're, you're stuck at home and you're sick and you don't know if you're going to live or die and you got a wife and you got a couple little kids and, and everything seems out of control. It, it, it's there when you have to realize, no, God is in control. This was God's plan from the beginning. God has a purpose for it. God knows what he's doing. This isn't, you know, <laughs> things aren't, you know, getting too hard for God. And we need to be reminded of these things. And, and, and when we realize that, it, it's really encouraging. I remember asking him, you know, one of the attacks people have is, 
well, how could a good God allow this? And I said, hey, could you imagine going through what you're going through, not knowing that this was in God's providence, not knowing that God was sovereign over this? He's like, I, I, I couldn't. I wouldn't be able to handle it. And so I just want to encourage you with this. These, these doctrines, these are so important because when we understand them, it, it's going to affect our life in ways that we can't even imagine, and especially when we're thrown into really, really hard times. You know, when somebody dies or you get a, a diagnosis or, uh, you know, you just feel in utter despair. It's the way that we think about God in those situations that's going to change absolutely everything. So I'm, I'm especially thankful that you guys are here. Uh, it's why we're also putting them online. If you guys miss and you want to watch it, you can. I encourage you to invite other people to watch it. Um, I, I really think that this is important and this is really going to affect us. It may not affect us right now as we think it is, but one day we are going to be in that situation where hard things are happening to us and it's going to completely change the way that we think about what we're going through. So, uh, uh, let's pray. God, I just ask for your blessing on this study. Uh, pray that you would be our teacher right now. Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth. Lord, that uh, your word would strengthen us, it would edify us, it would comfort us, it would exhort us, it would direct us, it would wash us, it would renew our minds, protect our hearts and minds, it would penetrate our heart and protect us from sins against you. It would do all these things that you've ordained for it to do, Lord. And, uh, and we just want to receive it and be eager to, to respond. We want to be doers of your word, not hearers only. So grant us grace tonight to be able to, to receive your word and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're under the sixth of the articles in the confession, and we're talking about the fall of man, sin, and the punishment thereof. Uh, the verse I want to start with is Romans 6.23. thought this was as good a place as any to start. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, the doctrine of sin really is an obvious doctrine. And what I mean by this is uh, we, we don't need biblical scholars to figure out what sin really is. Yes, sin is on almost every page of the Bible. But with, even without the Bible, we could just look around. <laughs> we could look at our lives. We could look at history. And we could realize that sin is a reality. Sin is a real thing that every person on this planet has to deal with. It, it, it should be obvious to us. We should just be able to look at just our day, the last hour, and realize that sin is a reality in each one of our lives if we have a, a good perception of, of what sin is. So it's obvious. But our culture doesn't like sin. Our culture is actually doing all that it can to get away, with the, get away from the idea of sin. And there's four main reasons why our modern culture can't comprehend sin or, uh, or tolerate the Bible's definition of sin. First, our society tends to believe or view human beings as being mostly good. Right? We, we think that we are born good and that if there is just a little bit of bad in us, that just needs to be reformed, right? It, it, uh, and, and, and that could be done through 
you know, positive thinking or, you know, a self-help book or maybe pass a law or two and, and everything will be okay. Right? There, there isn't this, this corruption inside of us that's causing all of our problems. Secondly, it's a, we have this deterministic view of humanity, and, and it's challenging the biblical understanding of sin. More and more, we're viewing people primarily as products of their environments, social upbringings, psychological drives, and deprivations. We're finding every excuse in the book to not call sin, sin. You know, I, I grew up in this household, so I do this. Or my mom was this, and so I do this. And there's all kinds of uh, ways that we could uh, you know, blame things on our upbringing or the environment we're in, the parents that we had, and so forth. Thirdly, we have this rise of postmodernism in our world. And so our society is shifting towards moral uh, relativism, right? So, so, so what you call a sin is different than what I call a sin. And your objective, uh, objective morality is different than my morality. And, and so there, there, there's nothing that's really objective. Everything's subjective. And so it's impossible to define anything as an in particular sin. Lastly, sin's an unpleasant subject. In our, our, our age of self-esteem and subjectivity, people do not like to think of themselves as evil. I like what Millard L. Erickson says here. Millard Erickson is a theologian. He says, to speak of humans as sinners is almost like screaming out a profanity or obscenity at a very formal, dignified, genteel meeting, or even in a church. It's forbidden. The general attitude is almost a new type of legalism, the major prohibition of which is you shall not speak anything negative. Right? Our society doesn't want to have any negative spoken to it. And when you do, you're committing a huge social error. So our, our society doesn't like that idea of sin. That's obvious. However, society's disdain for something doesn't make it any less of a reality. If you go to the South in the 1960s, there's all kinds of societies or cities that had a disdain for black people. That didn't mean black people didn't exist. Just because they didn't like it didn't mean that that wasn't a reality in their city. So just because we don't like something or we have a disdain for it or we don't want to talk about it or we want to avoid it doesn't mean that it's not a reality that we need to address. Of the Bible, 66 books, over 1,189 chapters, only two books and four chapters do not mention sin or sinners. Anybody guess what the two books or four chapters are? Genesis and Revelation. In Genesis 1 and 2, there's no mention of sin or sinners. Right? It's, it's God's creation. The fall doesn't happen until chapter 3. And the second one is the book of Revelation. Chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. There's no mention of sin or sinners there. But the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3.1 to Revelation 20, verse 15, abounds with the themes of human sin and the need for salvation. Sin is a major doctrine in the Bible. It, it actually affects every other doctrine in the Bible. Everything that you look at in the Bible, Sin is a, a major factor in, in determining what that doctrine is or how it plays out. 
The study of sin is called hermatiology. It comes from the Greek word hermatia, which is the noun form of sin. The verb hermatano means to err or to miss the mark. This is a, comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this idea of sinning, missing the mark. And we often picture ourselves as trying to like shoot this arrow and hit this bullseye and we, we line it up as straight as we can and we pull it back and we're doing our very, very best to hit the bullseye and we just kind of miss the mark. And we view sin that way. But I don't think that's a correct view of what sin really is. Yeah, yeah we're missing the mark, but we're aiming at the wrong target altogether. We're, we're supposed to be aiming for this target and we're aiming at a target right here. So, yeah, of course, we're missing the mark. I think that is a more biblical definition of sin. In the Bible, sin is a, a really complex issue, and so there's many ways to sin, and this is evident by the many words that the Bible uses for sin. Uh, we use words like to rebel, to trespass, to betray, to transgress. Sin is called unrighteousness, injustice, lawlessness. There's over 10 different words in the Bible, Greek and Hebrew words, that express this idea of sinning because sinning is so multifaceted, it, it, it's, it's, it's so broad, and we could do it in so many different ways. But although sin is multifaceted, and there's a lot of ways it's displayed in Scripture, there's some basic truths that we're going to look at tonight. First, I want us to see this, is all sin is first and foremost against God. Right? We read Psalm 51 earlier. David wrote that psalm, after the prophet Nathan came and confronted him for his sin with Bathsheba or Uriah. Remember, there was the time when the kings went out to battle, and David was like, you know what? I've got generals. I've got this army. I'm just going to hang out in my palace. I'm going to let them fight the battle. And while he's doing that, Bathsheba goes up on the roof and starts taking a bath. Maybe she was kind of flaunting herself in front of him. And the two of them ended up committing a sin. He commits adultery with her. And then she gets pregnant. And to cover that up, he ends up having her husband killed in battle so that he doesn't have to expose his sin to Bathsheba. And a year goes by. He thought he had it covered up. He thought that no one knew. And this prophet of God, Nathan, comes to him and tells him this whole story about how this rich guy had all these animals and his neighbor had this one little ewe lamb that he loved and treated it like a pet and he could sleep with them and all of that. And the rich guy, he had company over, and rather than killing one of his animals, he went and took the little ewe lamb and killed it. And David's like, that man should die. And Nathan says, yeah, that's you. <laughs> that's what you did. And confronted him. And so David repents and, and, and he gets forgiven by God. But then he pens a couple of psalms, and one of them is Psalm 51, where he's writing about uh, this, asking the Lord, begging the Lord for forgiveness. And in 50, Psalm 51, verse 4, David says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's interesting. David says, against you and you only, speaking of God, have I sinned. Now, it's not that David didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. He did. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had Uriah murdered. 
Yeah, he committed great sins with death. However, in comparison of his sin against God, those were minor. His transgression against God, this cosmic rebellion he did against the law of God, far outweighed the sin that he committed against his fellow human beings. I love this psalm. This psalm really teaches us two truths about sin. Psalm 51 does. First, it teaches us who we are. We're capable of falling. Think about this. David's the king. He, he has all the privileges in the world. He's called a man after God's own heart. And yet he's able to fall into adultery and murder. I bet if we took a poll in here, not one of us would say, you know what, I, I think I'm going to commit adultery or murder. I think I can commit adultery or murder. Those are like the, the really heathen sins. But the man of God fell into that. That's why the Bible says, if any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Right? We're, we're all capable of falling into the most egregious sins. But Psalm 51 also teaches us that no matter how far we fall, God is gracious enough to forgive us and to restore us. That even falling to the point of adultery and murder, David was restored and he got to keep his kingdom. So I love that. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines sin this way. It says it's an evil or evil doing seen in religious perspective, not only against humanity, society, others, or oneself, but against God. John MacArthur says this, sin must be understood from a theocentric or God-centered standpoint. At its core, sin is a violation of the creator-creature relationship. Man only exists because God made him, and man is in every sense obligated to serve his creator. Sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy over himself apart from the creator. The most all-encompassing view of sin's mainspring, therefore, is the demand for autonomy. That's what it is. I I don't want to be ruled by God. That was Adam and Eve's sin. I don't want to do what you told me. I I want to do what the serpent's telling me. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be autonomous. I want to rule for myself. I want to be like God. This idea of sin, it it really affects everybody, the Bible teaches. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continues continually does good and who never sins. There's not one person on earth who never sins. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So so we all sin. It's just some of us uh, exhibit it more than others or do it in a more obvious way than others. I like what this uh, one author says. He says, The story is told of two men who are trying to escape from an erupting volcano. As the fiery molten rock gushed out of its gaping crater, they fled in the only direction open to them. All went well until they came to a steaming or a stream of hot smoking lava about 30 feet across. Sizing up their situation, they realized that their only hope was to get over that wide barrier. One of the men was old, and the other was healthy and young. With a running start, they each tried to leap for safety. The first man ran a few feet through the air before falling into the bubbling mass. The younger, with his greater strength and skill, catapulted himself much further. Though he almost made it, he still missed the mark. It didn't matter that out of 
that he outdistanced his companion, for he too perished in the burning lava. Sin is short of a standard. I'm sorry, sin is falling short of a standard for glory of God. Though some fall short of that standard by far more than others, all fall short, nevertheless. You know, man might call it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man might call it a blunder. God calls it blindness. Man might call it a defect. God calls it a disease. Man might call it chance. God calls it a choice. Man might call it error. God calls it enmity. Man might call it fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it a liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trite. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it willfulness. You know, we tend not to think of ourselves as sinful as we actually are because we tend to compare ourselves with those around us. Right? However, the, the people around us, <laughs> that, that's not what we measure ourselves to see if we're sinful. The, the standard is, is Jesus and his word. If we want to see if we're sinful, I don't compare myself to you. I pick this book up and I look into this mirror and, 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 and it exposes my errors. But the problem is, is we don't do this enough. So we walk around and we don't have any clue that we're as sinful as we actually are. I told you guys last week that I started working out again. And, and I have been. I really enjoy it. Well, just the other day, I'm, I'm in the gym and I'm doing some bench press and I'm bench pressing the 125-pound dumbbell, the biggest one they have, and I'm looking around, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, man, I'm pretty strong. I'm on this day in here, and I'm, and I'm missing an arm. Like, what's wrong with all you people? <laughs> That's kind of what I'm thinking. You know, it's like, man, I'm, I'm pretty good. And then I remembered in Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, God says this. Isaiah says this, speaking for God. He has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the, the hills in a pair of scales. He, he's measured all the, the waters in the universe in the palm of his hand. And he doesn't spill a drop. And I started thinking about that. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of water. I wonder how much water is in the universe. So I Googled it. There's 326 million trillion gallons of water in the universe. Now, I didn't even know that there were such things as a million trillion. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, this is like, this is a lot. And then I remember, well, each gallon of water weighs eight pounds. So I tried to multiply it by eight, and you know what it came up with? This is air. <laughs> but that's true, because you can't calculate the power of God. The power of God is infinite. You can't put a number to it. But, but it's just to show the difference. Right? I thought my 125 was good, but that's purely compared to God's 326 million trillion times eight. Right? <laughs> All this to say, humans, we're a whole lot more sinful than we think because we're not comparing ourselves to the right standard. When we put our life up against the life of Jesus, we see just how utterly we fall short and, and how in need of his grace we really are. And thankful, thankfully, he's 
more than willing and more than capable to give us that grace. So let's start filling in this outline. Uh, by the way, I found the word origin, the origin of sin. So uh, as we go through this, we want to start out, we're going to talk about the origin of sin, the way that sin has affected us, and the, the provision for sin. But the origin of sin, how did sin begin? That is the question. Satan, the anointed cherub, became proud, right? And he lifted himself up, and he started saying that he will usurp God. He'll take the position of authority. So he fell from his place of honor to a place of dishonor. That's what Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 show us. If you want, you can go back and, and look at those chapters. Now, those chapters are about two real kings, the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. But when we read those, we realize that there's a whole lot more in this story than just those two kings. It's really the account of Satan falling from his position as the anointed cherub, his position of privilege to not having a place to go, being a vagabond on the earth. When Satan comes and he takes on the form of a, of a snake, a real snake, and he comes and he tempts Adam and Eve to follow his lead and to disobey God. And they did. That's how sin came into the world. It is really a story of pride and idolatry. Satan's sin was he was proud, and he wanted to assert himself as God, which is idolatry. Satan then tempted Adam and Eve into idolatry by getting them to believe his revelation instead of that of God's. In reality, every sin has pride and idolatry at the center of it. You know, if we were to keep the first commandment, just the first one, have a go on, besides me, we really wouldn't have to worry about anything else. Because any time that we break any other commandment, we're violating the first commandment. We're having a different God than Yahweh. We're saying, you know, like, I, I, I know what you say, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to make this other thing my God. And he says, I could do this. It's really cosmic treason. Some of these things might not seem like a big deal. It, it really wasn't. I mean, does, does eating a wrong piece of fruit seem like a big deal? But it's a massive deal because it's really rebellion against God. And God says that rebellion is cosmic treason. And we need to see God that, or see sin that way. But every time we sin, we're choosing idolatry. We're choosing to worship a false God. And we're really committing adultery with the Lord. I want to note this, though, about the, the how came into the world. There's, there's a bit of a mystery to it. The theologians call it the mystery of iniquity. And, and it's this. Like, we can understand that, right? Satan fell from heaven. Satan, you know, entered the serpent and tempted Eve, and, and she ate of it. But how do we answer this question? How does someone that doesn't have a sin nature, that was created in the image of God and declared good by God, how do they actually choose to sin? How do they choose to disobey God? Well, that's a little harder to understand. <laughs> Why would she choose that? And we, we know God gave her the capability to do that. He, he put her on mutable footing and allowed them the ability to sin. But why would they choose to sin? There's a bit of a mystery there. We, we don't know that. We just know that they did. But for number one, put this, God permitted sin and has a purpose for it. So fill in permitted and purpose. You know, the writers of the confession 
aren't careful to note that God permitted the evil to transpire, but he didn't cause it. It says that he, he permitted it. This isn't to say that it was outside of his will. It wasn't. It happened, so it was part of his will. The Bible teaches that God's working all things according to the counsel of his will. If something happens, it was God's will. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. But this God permitted. He permitted the fall because he had a purpose for it, and that purpose was to further display his glory and to draw out a redeemed humanity to give to his son. He wouldn't have been able to do either of those without a fall. And without a fall, how is God going to display his attributes? How is he going to display attributes like his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his patience, his long-suffering, his compassion, if sin never happens, if nobody ever blows it, if nobody ever gets hurt? He's he's not going to be able to show those. And I believe those are the attributes he wants to show the most. Remember in, in, in Exodus 33, God and Moses are up on the mountain. God's given Moses the tablets with the law, tells him to go down. The people are committing, they're having an orgy and worshiping a golden calf. And Moses throws the tablets and they break. Then he comes back up for another 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. And the Lord gives him another set of tablets. And Moses is talking to God. And he's like, God, just show me your face. Show me your glory. I, I, I want to see more of you. And, and what does God say? Moses, I can't. I, if I should, you, you would die. You, 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 I, I go in inapproachable light. I'm a consuming fire. If you approach me and say anything, you'll just be consumed. You'll die. I can't do that. I've got plans for you. So, so this is what I'll do. I'll, this rock over here, I'll pluck out a piece of it, and I'll tuck you in there. And when I pass by you, I'll cover you with my hand. And you can see my hinder parts. You can see my, my after glow. You can see the, the full end of my glory as I pass by. And God passes by. And, and as God's passing by Moses and covering him, God starts audibly preaching his attributes. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, merciful, abounding in loving kindness. A, a God that doesn't impute iniquity but forgives sins. And it starts preaching his attributes out loud. What I find interesting about this is the attributes that he chose to preach. Now, if it was me and I was walking by, I'd be like, the Lord, the Lord, all-knowing, all-powerful, you know, all-wise. That's not what God said. He said compassionate and gracious and merciful and abounding in loving kindness. Because those are the attributes he wants us to see the most. Those are the attributes he most wants to put on display. But he wouldn't be able to do that if there wasn't sin in the world. So sin is, is part of God's original design, but he's not the author of it. He's not the one responsible for it. He just permitted it to enter his creation. Point number two. This, this goes right into point number two. God didn't influence Adam and Eve to sin. Satan did. Look in the word Satan. If you look at the confession, it, that, that's exactly what it says. You know, sin was part of God's design or counsel because it happened and it serves his purpose. However, we need to be careful not to make God the author of sin or pass any culpability for sin onto God. God is pure holiness. There isn't a speck of evil or wrongdoing in him. In Genesis 18, 
God is, uh, he, he, he's walking with Abraham. Remember, they're, they're going to Sodom and Gomorrah to, to keep ahead to rescue Lot and his family before calling down judgment on the city. And, God, and Abraham's kind of bargaining with God. He's saying, hey, if there's 50 righteous people, are you going to destroy it? God's like, no, nah, if there's 50 righteous people, I, I, I won't destroy it. Well, what if there's only 40 righteous? <laughs> and he's, he keeps getting them down. Well, it says this in, in Genesis 18:25. It, it says, "Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you." Here it is: "Shall not the Judge of all the earth deal justly?" Or another translation: "Shall not the Judge of all the earth do what's right?" God's always going to do what's right. We can't ascribe sin or error or, or culpability to God. God is always doing what's right. It was Satan that came in and tempted Eve, and he did it because he wanted to. God didn't force him to. God didn't coerce Satan to do that. God didn't coerce Eve to eat from the fruit. She did it because that's what she wanted to do. In James chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, through 15, uh, James kind of answers this question. He says, Let none of you say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each of you is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We can't blame God for our sin. He may have ordained the circumstances that caused us to choose to sin. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that he's also created a way of escape out of those circumstances as well. And we don't have to choose to sin. We can choose the way out. Right? But whenever we sin, it's because we choose to do so. Point number three, Adam's sin brought death. Fill in the word death. Now, the widespread and devastating results of sin could be summarized in one word, death. God told Adam that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is the penalty for disobedience. It led Adam and Eve into idolatry by getting them to believe. Er, I'm sorry. Death is the penalty for disobedience. It's a complex concept involving spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. There's multiple ways that we could die from our disobedience. But first is spiritual death. You know, God said that the day they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. But then Adam lived to be 930 years old. He didn't physically die. Was God wrong? Was God unfaithful to bring about the consequences that he promised? No, because the day they ate from the fruit, they spiritually died. Spiritual death is a state of alienation from God. As a result of Adam and Eve's spiritual death, all humanity is born spiritually dead. This is what Paul describes in Ephesians 2.1. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what sin brings. It brings spiritual death. It separates us from God. For Adam and Eve, disobedience brought separation from God, banishment from his presence, and forfeiture of spiritual life. 
So there's spiritual death, but there's also physical death. You know, uh, Adam's sin not only brought spiritual death, but also physical death came into the creation. Think about this. He gave up, he ate, his body started the deterioration process where he eventually died. Yeah, it took over 900 years, but he still died. The day that they sinned, an animal had to be killed to provide the covering. Adam, Adam's initial offspring, Abel, would be killed by his brother. When you get into Genesis chapter 5, we have a, a genealogy, and over and over again we read so-and-so begot so-and-so, and they begot so-and-so, and they died. <laughs> and they died. And they died. And they died. Over and over again, we can't escape the fact that sin brings death. And besides the exception of Enoch and Elijah and those who will be taken in the rapture, every single person in the human race will physically die because of Adam's transgression. That's the reality. Hebrews 9.27 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Sin brings death. And if spiritual death and physical death aren't enough of a punishment for sin, there's another type of death. That's eternal death. Those who die spiritually dead, they will face eternal death. At the great white throne judgment, the spiritually dead will be raised to eternal life, and they'll be given bodies fit perfectly for the place of torment that they are going. They'll have bodies perfectly suited to absorb torment in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And eternal death doesn't mean the end of their It is still classified as death because it brings an eternal separation from God, uh, from all of God's goodness and all of God's mercy. Instead, they're going to receive everlasting punishment for their sins. You know, Paul says in Romans 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The reality is, is sin brings death, sin destroys, sin kills. Sin kills relationships, sin kills opportunities, kills reputation. Sin ultimately kills the sinner. Sin will always bring death. Let it be the effects of Adam's sin on humanity. So from the word effects. You see, the Bible teaches that Adam's sin didn't just affect him, but everyone that came after him as well. This is because God ordained the idea of headship or representation. Think of it this way. In America, we live in what's called a constitutional republic. right? We elect a leader. That leader makes decisions that affect all of us. Right? So imagine if tomorrow Joe Biden decides, hey, I want to go to war. We're going to go and attack Russia, say. Right? He's not just making that decision for himself. The whole country's at war. You and I are at war because of that one decision that our leader, our, our head, chose to make. And this is true in the Bible as well. The Bible talks about headship, right? Federal headship. And it talks about uh, Adam being the, the first head, right? And then Christ being the second head. There's two main passages, Romans 5, 12 through 19. I'm not going to read that right now for the sake of time. 
and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 explains it a lot more concisely. It says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection for the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all will be made alive. So Adam chose to sin, and that made everybody that came after Adam, which is everybody, sinners. They were all born with a condition of sin. Christ chose faithfulness. So all those that come after Christ, who are baptized by the Spirit of God into Christ, will be made right, will be made righteous, will be made alive. Uh, point number one, the disease of sin is hereditary. Adam and Eve sinned, they become corrupted. When they procreated, they passed that corruption on to their offspring, who would later pass it on to their offspring. Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his parents, you know, having some kind of sinful sexual affair that brought about his conception. No, that's not what happened. David had godly parents. It was talking about from the moment of his conception, he was culpable before God. He was a sinner. He had a sin nature. and was guilty. John 3, 6, Jesus, remember he's talking to Nicodemus, and he's telling him how he needs to be born again. And Jesus says this, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh can only produce flesh. Fallen humans can only produce fallen humans. We need a, a spiritual birth. We need a second birth if we're going to be made alive. Some people in this group have kids. If we don't have kids personally, we've all been around kids, right? And it doesn't take us long to realize that sinning comes naturally to them. You don't have to teach a child how to be selfish. <laughs> you don't have to teach them to say, not fair or mine. It's pretty naturally to them. Bodhi Bakum, he was talking about this, and they were saying that, you know, oh, these little kids are innocent and cute. And he says, that kid isn't innocent. That's a viper in a diaper. <laughs> he ain't innocent. And, and God made him that cute just so you wouldn't kill him before he grew up. That's the reality, though. That's not some little cute, innocent kid. That's a, that's a little sinner that, <laughs> that needs to be saved. The fact is, is that everyone inherits a sin nature from their parents. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. This one pastor wrote this. He said, my seminary classmate, the late Arthur W. Milton, told of a visit to America by the Reverend Kiyoshi Kanemoto, a Methodist minister who had miraculously survived the Hiroshima conflagration. The pastor asked to meet with Albert Einstein, the man whose knowledge had much to do with the construction of the first atom bomb. Einstein was pleased and to welcome the minister from Japan. Imagine the high drama and excitement as the two men met in the professor's home in Princeton, New Jersey. It was reported that Einstein suggested the bomb should have uh, been dropped on, never should have been dropped on a city. Graciously, Kanemoto countered, the Japanese would have dropped it on America if they had possessed the bomb. With firmness and moral conviction, Einstein answered, even if you might have done so to us, this would still have been no excuse for us 
to drop the bomb. The only reason that we did it was because we actually had it. You know, the other side would have done it as well because we are all sinners. Point number two, the disease of sin affects all of who whom it affects. This is the doctrine of total depravity. I, I, I think we often get this doctrine wrong. When I talk to people about total depravity, they're like, I'm not totally depraved. Like, I'm, I'm not like a serial killer. Like, they think, you know, I'm totally depraved. Just speaking of, like, Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer or, or, or something like that. But that's not what total depravity is talking about. It's not talking about uh, the extent of the damage caused by the fall. it's talking about the extent of the damage. It's not talking about the the degree of the damage. It's not that everybody's as sinful as they could possibly be. It's that they're as sinful in the totality of who they are. Every aspect of us has been affected by the fall. Our minds have been affected. Our hearts have been affected. Our our free wills have been affected. That's why we can't freely choose God on our own. Yeah, we have a free will, but it's been corrupted. It's, it's enslaved to sin. Our spirituality has been affected. Our sexuality has been affected. Our physical bodies have been affected. All of these faculties have been affected by sin, and they need to be subjected to God and his word. There isn't one aspect of who we are who isn't, that isn't affected by sin and doesn't need to be subjected to the law of God. Point number three, the disease of sin makes fallen men incapable of not sinning. Tell me the word incapable. Our nature is totally corrupted, so the only thing that we could produce is corruption. Apart from regeneration, we're unable to not sin. uh, Jesus says, he who sins is a a slave to sin. This is the, the, the bondage of the will, because we're enslaved to sin, we can't sin. In, in Romans 3.11, it says that there's nobody who does good. Jesus told the rich young ruler, nobody's good. Why do, you, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God, Jesus said. You see, God doesn't just judge the action. He judges the, the heart, the intent, the motivation behind the action. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus say? That, that if you even look at a woman with lust, You've committed adultery in your heart. If you have hatred towards your brother, you're a murderer in your heart. Because God judges the heart. God judges the the motivation for the action, not just the action. Paul says this in Romans 14.23. In Romans 14, Paul's talking about the use of our liberties and how we should use our liberties and the right way to use them in a Christian context. He says this, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith. And whatsoever is not from faith is sin. So if God is judging our motivation for what we do, the unregenerate is doing nothing from the biblical standpoint of biblical faith. He doesn't even believe in God. How could he do anything as a, as a response to God? Right? Faith is, is hearing God speak and responding accordingly. And the unregenerate man can't even understand the words of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They're foolishness to him. They're spiritually discerned. He doesn't have the spirit of God. So how could he hear God say anything and respond in the right way? He can't. 
So no matter what he does, has some semblance of sin attached to it. The, the, the unregenerate, they don't do anything for the right reason. They don't do anything for the glory of God. Everything they do has some kind of selfish motivation. You could take the most philanthropic or altruistic act that you see people do in society. Someone donates millions and millions of dollars to build a children's hospital in a poor neighborhood. Behind that, there's going to be some kind of selfish motivation. Maybe he wants a cat. Maybe he wants attention or publicity. Maybe it's an attempt to avail their conscience. Or maybe they want someone to owe them some type of favor. The point is, is it's not done solely for the glory of God. It's not done in obedience to what God had told them to do. And so it's sin. You know, Edwards, he, he says this, that the unregenerate is free to choose whatever type of sin he wants to commit, but he can't choose not to sin altogether. Point number four, the disease of sin renders the sinner unable and unwilling to come to Christ. Because our minds, hearts, and free wills are corrupted by sin, we can't choose Christ. Not only are we incapable of choosing Christ, but we're unwilling to be saved. In fact, we're not even looking for a Savior. In Romans 3, 10 through 8, Paul, he's really taking a whole bunch of quotes from the Old Testament and stringing them together to show really how fallen, how depraved, how sinful man is. And so this is a great passage because this applies to everybody. These are quotes from the Old Testament that Paul's stringing together for the church. So it applies to people all, all times, Jews and Greeks, everybody. Paul says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, not, no, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even the one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is on their lips. Who's full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace, they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no one even looking for God. They're unwilling. They're incapable of saving themselves. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not able to do so. And those who are of the flesh cannot please God. Faith pleases God. Right? But the, the unregenerate can't please God. They can't exercise faith. They're, they're incapable. You see, we're hostile enemies that aren't even looking for God before we're saved. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 6 that if anyone wants to come to me, the Father has to literally drag them to me. He has to draw them to me. Point number five, sin renders us guilty and puts us under God's wrath. Look at someone guilty in wrath. You know, sin deserves judgment. God's going to be faithful to bring it. I want us to see that the, the sinner is already in a place of wrath or judgment. It's not just this coming judgment for the sinner. He's, he's already at a place of wrath and judgment before God right now. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so they're already in a place of wrath. In John chapter 3, right after you know, uh, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son. Right? We, we, we love that. It says this, verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. They're already under wrath. They're already in a place of judgment because they're rejecting Jesus. Romans 1.18 through the end of the chapter is all about this, the wrath of God on sinners here on earth. There's also an eschatological wrath coming to this Christ-rejecting world called the Great Tribulation. And there's an eternal wrath for those sentenced to the lake of fire. So there's wrath, there's judgment appointed for the sinner. God's gracious cure for sin. Letter C, we're almost done. And then for letter one, or number one, Philip, only God can forgive sin. And he only has one cure. So in, in Matthew chapter 9, there's this, this story. Remember these guys, these uh, four guys, they bring this uh, paralytic to Jesus on a bed. I'll just read the story to you. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. See, they had the right, the part right about God only being able to forgive sins, but what they didn't realize was that Jesus was God. And so therefore, Jesus was able to forgive sins. In Acts 4, uh, verse 12, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, na- no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, I know this world thinks it's kind of narrow-minded and, uh, to think that there's only one way to be saved. Or, 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 or it's kind of stupid to think that because some dude died on a cross 2,000 years ago that my sins could be forgiven. Right? It just kind of seems illogical. But there's a story in the Old Testament about how uh, the children of Israel are walking through the wilderness and, and they fell into idolatry. And the Lord sent these fiery serpents to bite people and they got sick. And God provided a, a cure for them that resembled the cross. 
It says this in Numbers 21, uh, starting in verse 4. And they set out from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water. We loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Moses interceded for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now I imagine that camp, those people who had been bitten, who were suffering, who were dying, who were sick, who were in their camp, they were complaining. And there's people walking by and saying, hey, if you want to be healed of that, all you need to do is go to the serpent that Moses made and look at it and, and you'll be healed. And some of these people are like, that's stupid. I was looking at this bronze snake going to heal my disease. How's that going to fix my problem? And, I, and I'm willing to bet some of them just said, I ain't doing that. That's just dumb. I'm gonna, and they probably died. Jesus says this, John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Point number two, forgiveness is instantaneous, but the treatment takes a lifetime. You know, we're saved the second we believe. The, the second that we exercise saving faith, we're declared justified and we're imputed with Christ's righteousness. And it's through his imputed righteousness that we're able to stand in his presence. Right? That, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. He who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was imputed with our sin and we're imputed with his righteousness. That's how we're able to stand before God. In John 16, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and sin because they didn't believe in me. In righteousness, because I ascend to the Father. In judgment, because the world, ruler of this world has been judged. That sounds kind of weird. Righteousness, because I ascend to the Father. Well, when Jesus ascended there on the Mount of Olives to the Father, he showed what the standard for going into God's presence was. It was perfection. He had to be absolutely perfect to be able to ascend and to be in the presence of the Father. But we've been imputed with Christ's righteousness. So one day at the rapture, we'll ascend, and we're going to be in the presence of the Father because we're standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own righteousness. We've been imputed with that righteousness. So when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. And so we're able to stand in his presence. That's awesome. We've been forgiven. That happens instantaneously. But just because we're justified and imputed with righteousness, it doesn't mean we're free from the sin within us. This ongoing battle of sin takes a lifetime. We're constantly going to be battling the flesh. We're constantly going to be trying to put our flesh in submission to the word of God. We're constantly... Uh, going to be, uh, I, I believe this, that, that the more that we walk with the Lord, to the Lord, the more that we're going to see that we're a sinner. The more that we're going to see wrong with us. 
It's like when you come into a room and it's like dusty and that you don't really see much. Then when you flip on the high beam lights, you see so much more of dust particles and that flying through the air. Because we have better vision. And the closer that we get to God, we're going to have better vision and be able to see more that's wrong with us. Not less. I'm more of aware that I'm a sinner now than I was when I first got saved. Now, granted, I, I sin less now than I did then. You know, I was in some egregious sin back then. But I'm just more aware of how much more of a sinner I am now. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's writing the book of Romans at the end of his life. He's been a Christian for decades. He's written books of the Bible. He's planted churches. Listen to what he says. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into the bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I hate, I do not want to do. Uh, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good I want to do, I don't do. But the practice, but I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. But if I am doing the very thing I don't want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. But the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur, concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner, the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free of this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on my other with the flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. So Paul's talking about how this is me. And even though he's saved and the Spirit of God sanctifies him, he's battling that every day, all throughout his entire life. This idea that we could reach perfection in this life as far as not sinning is one foreign to Scripture. Listen to what he says in Philippians 4, or Philippians 3, I'm sorry, verses 12 through 14. Again, this is Paul. This is the great apostle Paul. Maybe the best Christian that's ever lived. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may hold, lay hold of that which has laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as held, already having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I make sanctification my mission. I'm doing everything I can to become as much like Jesus as I can in this life. I'm battling sin daily. A couple of quick applications. Number one, we need to hate sin. We need to see sin for what it is. We need to see sin for what it brings, what it causes, that it brings forth death, that it's going to kill everything in our lives, that the ultimate end of sin is Jesus on the cross. We look at the cross. We see Christ, and we know that it's our sin that put him there. How could we then go on sinning? 
right? We, we need to love what, what God loves and hate what He hates, and God hates sin. We need to decide that we're going to love the things of God more than we love our sin if we're going to have any victory over it. It's got to start there. Point number two, or application number two, we need to help people realize they are sick and share the cure. You know, we, we recently did this thing called COVID, right? And, and one of the weird things about COVID is is that you could be sick, so they say, and get other people sick, and you don't even know that you're sick. Right? Then all of us, you know, that's why we had to do the, the testing and have the contact traces and all of that. And, and while we may not believe that with COVID, it's definitely true with sin. There's people all over this world that are walking around that are infected by sin. They're going to die from sin. They're going to face ultimate judgment for their sin. And they don't even know that they're sick. And they're going around and spreading sin to other people. And their sin is contagious. And we know that what sin is. We know they have it. We know what the cure is. How could we not go and share that with them? How can we not go tell them, hey, you have this thing called sin. I had it too. And there's a cure. All you got to do is go look at the brass serpent. Lift it up over there. And you'll be healed. Let's pray. God, uh, I thank you uh, for this word. I thank you that you are faithful to tell us what sin is, the things that are going to hurt us and hurt our walk with you. Lord, and I thank you that you've given us so many warnings about it in your word. I pray that we would uh, be readers of your word, doers of your word, and that would prompt us to pursue you and, and sin less. Lord, I, I pray that you uh, just give us a desire to be with you and to be more like you and uh, to overcome the deeds of the flesh, God. I pray that you give us a hatred for sin. I pray that you give us the ability to and the courage and the boldness to be able to tell people that they have a sin problem and, and point them to the cure, to point them to Jesus. And we do pray that you save people, Lord. I pray that you deliver people from their sins and reconcile them to yourself, Lord. We love you. We can't wait for the day where you come and we are delivered from this body of death, Lord, and we look forward to that. But help us to be on mission until then. So thank you again for tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.